America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute, one minute. Okay. We from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from lovely suburban Connecticut. And I'm Hugh Pope, your co-host, still holding the fort here in Belgium. We at Crisis Group have very recently published a report on Turkey and Greece and their brinksmanship in the eastern Mediterranean and looking to see what they can do to ease tensions. The report is titled, appropriately enough, Turkey-Greece from Maritime Brinksmanship to Dialogue. And we've asked uh, our Turkey project director, Nagar Goksal, to join us for this podcast to talk a little bit about the report's key findings and to discuss ways forward. So Nagar, welcome. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's nice to join you. So what, in a nutshell, is the report about? Uh, why, why do we write this report and what is its aim? Well, starting in the summer of 2020, we witnessed a military standoff that lasted for weeks between Turkey and Greece in disputed waters in the East Med, uh, where both countries claim sovereignty, even though the two sides don't necessarily want war, are not interested in a military confrontation. There was a collision on August 12, and we were worried that uh, an accident or a miscalculation could lead to something more serious. Uh, In fact, the two countries have been in a dispute over maritime issues for many decades, and there's almost been a cyclical escalation. But there was a difference in this one in that uh, many regional powers were also involved, and the sort of channels for dialogue between Turkey and Greece were less than usual. So is this just a regionalization, a broadening of a pre-existing conflict, or is there more to it than that? There are many disputes, many different angles of the Turkish-Greek problems. There's uh, continental shelf problems, delimitation issues, many more that are bilateral. But we saw that this came at a time when Turkey was also worried about being isolated in a broader sense with its uh, relations soured with countries in the Middle East region that, I mean, Egypt UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, countries that got involved in this dispute, but also Turkey-EU relations were all-time low. And so many other frictions that Turkey had built into uh, what had for decades been largely, largely bilateral. So Nagai, if it was a whole set of factors that led to the escalation, what's changed that the, the two sides managed to start talking again? Yes, they did go back to talks in January to 2021. And I think there was an understanding on both sides that they couldn't advance their interests further with escalation. There was a limit to Greece's ability to stack up supporters. Uh, Some EU countries pressured Greece as well to go back to the table. The EU has interests with Turkey, everything from the migration issue to commercial and security interests. And some EU countries didn't see it in their interest to be sort of getting to be instrumentalized in what was a long running bilateral spat. And also, I think Turkey saw that it can't afford much more brinkmanship due to its own economic fragility. Um, Turkey needs to mend ties with Europe. It's important for investor confidence. And there's just so far Turkey could get with military escalation, particularly since it saw that this was mobilizing other countries against Turkey too. 
I think there's also a sort of change in context where we see Turkey now also reaching out to Egypt and to Saudi Arabia. The EU-US convergence, some say, increased the cost of Turkey straying. And there's a general sort of wave of normalizations in the MENA region that Ankara doesn't want to be an outlier of. So as the Gulf countries, Gulf and Iran, Gulf and Israel, tried to normalize their relations, Turkey was going to be sort of left out. And I think there's a, a larger reason as well that Turkey decided to be less disruptive than uh, supposedly it had been in the last five years. What about the gas? I mean, it's at least in principle, right? This is about the right to um, to extract the gas resources. Is the gas the cause or is it the regional politics and the geopolitics affecting gas extraction? Well, exploration for gas has been a component in the almost cyclical escalation that we see Turkey and Greece having gotten drawn into since the 1970s. But I think it's more about sort of sovereignty claims at large. The discovery of gas fields since 2011 around Cyprus has been very important because Ankara holds that Turkish Cypriots have a rightful stake uh, in these reserves, and there was plans to transfer that gas to Europe by passing Turkey and also not sharing revenues with the Turkish Cypriots. So it was an important sort of trigger, let's say. But larger than that was a Turkish perception that Greece's hand was getting strengthened by the backing of a host of countries that Turkey perceives as wanting to contain Turkey's geopolitical reach. And adding on to that, there's a, an empowerment of nationalists in Turkey ever since the coup attempt. And the nationalist segment that are in parliament and in society have been arguing that Turkey needs to harden its stance and show muscle more. Otherwise, its sovereign rights are going to be dismissed and its interests will be trampled on. So I think that sort of vicious cycle was set off and, and gas was perhaps a trigger but it was a, a larger geopolitical confrontation. Does the gas affect how the EU sees this? I mean, how much of this gas does the EU look at and think that it might be useful? You know, in general, the European Union countries are looking to depend on gas less, both for green reasons and to lessen dependence on Russia. But is this a factor in their own attitudes toward these, this conflict? Well, I mean, I think one component of the both the EU and the US involvement was um, sort of support for an alternative to Russian uh, gas. So that was one reason, I think, for the EU and the US to be supportive of the plans for what was the project of a pipeline, the East Med gas pipeline. But of course, one of our uh, observations was that in a way, such a pipeline would be, I think, the longest in the world, and it wouldn't really be in line with the climate goals that have been pronounced. So to the extent that it was about getting that gas to Europe, one of the recommendations that we made was that this could be reconsidered with a green approach. One of the things that I found most interesting in the report was the way you analyzed how both sides have used the gas and the maritime boundaries as a, as a way of energizing their nationalist base. And obviously that played a role in the escalation that you reported about in the middle of last year. But has there been a change on either side in that? Have you, have you seen that actually being moderated by Turkey's sense of isolation or the new government in Greece? How is that domestic dynamic playing into all this? Well, I mean, public opinion is, a, is an important aspect. Public expectations on both sides 
I've been geared at, at maximalist objectives and appearing uncompromising um, and pronouncing fiery words towards the other it brings votes and it brings support. So it's been difficult in both countries for constructive voices to try to voice more moderate positions. And they're blamed for treason, of not being patriotic enough, and they, they fuel each other on both sides. The, I mean, the, of course, the nationalist segments, I know Turkey, of course, better, sort of see a, see a slippery slope in that they worry that Turkey is going to be boxed into a small maritime zone. There's a sort of a motto, the, the, the longest coast, the Turkey has the longest coast in the East Medans. They perceive an intention to contain Turkey into a very small jurisdiction in the sea. It's, of course, about energy, but it's also just about a nationalistic claim for a larger space of sovereignty in the sea. Of course, in the old days, this nationalist drive was all focused on one place, wasn't it? Cyprus. Cyprus was the big thing. And I remember when a decade ago, the gas was discovered and everyone started talking about this new Eastern Mediterranean rivalries that uh, we even now have a whole section on our crisis group website now devoted to it. But in those days, it was just seen as an extension of the Cyprus problem. Where now does the Cyprus problem fit into all this? Mm. Well, of course, I mean, the gas reserves that this ordeal erupted over are around Cyprus, and it was the, trans the transport of that gas to Europe, excluding Turkey and excluding the Turkish Cypriots, that Turkish side was objecting to while it was posturing against Greece regarding the prospective uh, East Med gas pipeline. It's also the ships, the Turkish ships around Cyprus that the EU sanctions have hinged on. Essentially, I mean, from an EU perspective, it's the seismic research that Turkey conducted around Cyprus that's the problem. I mean, more broadly, though, Cyprus is at the heart of the problems in that the admission of the Republic of Cyprus into the EU in 2004, while still divided, has created a lot of grievance in Turkey, and it's empowered the nationalists, where the nationalists will turn to Turkey and say, look, we told you so. You, uh, you tried to reconcile and you just emboldened the other side. You know, you have to take a harsher stance, otherwise Turkey's rights are going to be violated. And Cyprus is always revoked in that kind of discussion. And sort of Turkey's losses on the Cyprus front are, are probably the most inciting factor um, that, that Turkish nationalists will point to. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking to Crisis Group Turkey Project Director Nagar Goksal about the new report, Turkey-Greece for Maritime Brinksmanship to Dialogue. So, Nigar, you've outlined an incredibly complicated and convoluted set of issues and interests and problems, historical, global strategy, regional strategy. You've alluded to some of the, well, one of the recommendations of the report of um, trying to get a little greener on some of the pipeline thinking. What else does the report recommend for this particular uh, Gordian knot? Well, uh, having talked to all sides, we observed that the actual resolution of the GNC and East Med maritime disputes is not at reach in the near term. So neither side is ready to compromise. Their publics are not ready for that discussion. Um, but neither side wants war either. So what we recommended was more along the lines of managing the disputes, diffusing tensions, 
preventing the disputes from bleeding into other areas and, and building grounds for a negotiation of the issues at a more conducive time. This involved things like abstaining from provocations or what the two sides perceive as provocations, which sometimes is rhetorical and sometimes is physical. It's like actually conducting military exercises on national days of the other country, things that incite nationalistic feelings for the other side. We have also, of course, recommended the maximization of any avenue possible for dialogue. And the assumption of exploratory talks, of course, was positive. And ever since we wrote the report, there have also been higher level dialogue channels that have been pursued. And that was one thing that we recommended, for example, the meeting of the Turkish president and the Greek prime minister, which took place last week. Low politics is an area that we suggested more can be done in, and that to some degree we see positive signs in that direction in terms of economic interests or focusing more on things that are in both countries' interests that can build trust, because trust is a big issue. And then we had a few more ambitious recommendations. Actually, there was one that I missed, which is the military confidence-building measures that have been agreed on in the past. And we suggest that the two sides recommit to these. And these involve things like not conducting long-lasting military exercises that block large territories in the sea and are both inconvenient and sometimes incite backlash on the other side. But our more ambitious suggestions were that Turkey be included in regional platforms because, for example, having been excluded from the East Med gas forum, we saw that some segments in Ankara felt like the only way Ankara can be heard or will be listened to is through military means, that Turkey can't express itself in any form except for showing muscle. So we thought as much as possible, maybe if not the East Med Gas Forum, then a multilateral conference somehow give Turkey a seat. We also suggested that leeway be made in talking about revenue sharing with the Turkish Cypriots, the revenue of the gas if it's extracted and transported, which is unlikely with the Turkish Cypriots on the island. Looking to the future, of course, it would also be good for the two sides' publics to be ready for compromise in the longer term, and that requires more freedom of speech on both sides. Of course, this all sounds very fighting over the antique issues sometimes, doesn't it? And we have a global pandemic going on and both countries' economies have been badly hit. And they have talked a bit about cooperating on health and tourism. And uh, President Erdogan is also now meeting much more regularly with European and indeed US President Joe Biden. Is there a positive dynamic going on? Can you actually point to anything that's looking better in the months ahead? Well, um, we saw Turkey pull back its uh, seismic research ships from disputed waters. We saw a military deconfliction mechanism set up at NATO. The resumption of exploratory talks was positive and high-level meetings have increased. Ever since we wrote our report, the Greek foreign minister came to Turkey, the Turkish foreign minister went to Greece, and last week Prime Minister Mitsotakis met with President Erdogan. In fact, one of the things they agreed on, as you mentioned, was a mutual recognition of, of the COVID vaccination certificates of the two sides. And that's something that should enable tourism to take place. Actually, I'm on an island right now, one of the two Aegean islands that is Turkey's. And you know, I've already heard a lot of people getting excited about their prospects of going to Greece again. So that in itself is um, to a Greek island. So I think the mood in Turkey, at least, is more positive. So are you cautiously optimistic then? I mean, it sounds like at least on this point. 
I mean, I think, yes, sitting in Turkey, at least, I think the mood is more positive. The inflammatory rhetoric is not heard these days. And there's a sense that Turkey is also, it's not just about Greece trying to mend ties. Last week, President Erdogan also met with President Biden. He met with President Macron. I mean, even after the meeting with his French counterpart, the statements have been upbeat. Of course, always cautious. This is Turkey. Things can change 180 degrees um, very quickly. But there seems to be an effort, at least, to try this route, to try a route of more dialogue and see what dividends it brings. I often wondered when listening to all the nationalist dialogue during my years in Turkey, what it would actually be that anyone would fight over? What would the goals be? It seems to me that often that it's become clear that there's actually no further military action would actually solve anything for anybody. So is there, and that indeed the nationalist sections of the population in Greece and Cyprus were actually quite used to the status quo and that it seemed to me less and less likely that the two sides had saw any benefit in actual military action. Is that also something that's underlying the positive momentum or am I just over-optimistic here? The status quo, you're right. The, the two sides are somewhat used to it. One of the problems is it's hard to see a leader on either side being at the helm and actually compromising what for decades have not been compromised. So it seems that de-escalating and keeping the calm is in the interest of both sides, but actually making the hard compromises necessary for a more durable solution is not politically expedient. Therefore, you have a somewhat fragile calm that can always be disrupted. Can I go back to the Americans and the Europeans who aren't the Greeks? How useful can they be? I mean, or how harmful can they be? Do you see their engagement as generally positive or potentially quite negative? Well, in the past, we saw the United States and Britain intervene diplomatically to diffuse crises between Turkey and Greece more than they seem to be now. And mediators can be useful, but they're not a substitute for direct contact. At least from Turkey's perspective, perhaps because its diplomatic hand has been weaker, the involvement of external actors is seen as a liability because they can enter the field as an opportunity to further their own interests or settle their own scores. In terms of the involvement of the EU, I think Turkey has been skeptical because Turkey is not an EU member and Ankara claims the EU doesn't have jurisdiction over maritime issues anyway. And Turkey sees the EU and the Greece almost using each other in a way uh, to increase their leverage against Turkey. And Germany stands out because it, it played a very constructive role to bring both sides to the table in January. Uh, I think France's involvement has been the, the most uh, controversial perhaps for Turkey because Turkey and, and France compete over regional influence in a broader theater in the Middle East and even perhaps in the Caucasus. Uh, they have other um, interests and ideological differences. And one of our recommendations was actually that France, if possible, compartmentalize its, its problems with Turkey, such as not in a way that doesn't make it harder for Turkey and Greece to resolve their problems. The threat of sanctions, uh, you know, cynically speaking, it, EU sanctions may have helped bring Turkey to a more constructive line. But then the implementation of sanctions uh, could very well strengthen hardliners in Turkey. So it's, it's a fragile issue and one that can, can backfire 
uh, therefore, one thing that we recommended is that they really be reserved for very serious violations and, and be reversible so that it's clear on what basis Turkey can avoid sanctions. Um, I think the U.S. has been seen as a relatively fair external power on, on the Aegean disputes in the past, but it's still uncertain how much the Biden administration will be involved. And it, it, the U.S. does have more important agenda items with Turkey, like Syria and Russia. So whether it would want to use its leverage on this file, I think, remains uncertain. I always remember sitting in the U.S. embassy residence in Ankara, watching U.S. Senator Dick Durbin listen to two dozen Turkish leading commentators and opinion makers and influencers brief him about what they were expecting from the whole set of Aegean and, uh, and East Mediterranean issues. And at the end of it, he said uh, to the assembled group, well, listening to you all, I understand that none of you want to solve this problem. Can you reflect on that? I mean, would you think the same briefing today would result in more people in Turkey being more willing to, to resolve these uh, Cyprus and Aegean and Greek problems? Well, there's a, there's a nationalist wave in Turkey now, and it, it's bigger than uh, President Erdogan. When you look at the constellation of, of parties in government and in opposition, uh, none of them are supportive of concessions. In fact, they're vying for nationalistic votes. That's where they can take votes from each other is using nationalistic lines. So I don't think the domestic political scene is um, conducive to compromise. I mean, that being said, it depends on whether it can deliver. What President Erdogan was criticized for, I mean, so when you look at how he evolved, the first 10 years of his being head of state, he did try compromise and sort of reconciliation on a number of, of fronts, including Cyprus and to some degree progressing talks with Greece. It was because he couldn't deliver um, solutions. Not only could he not deliver solutions, but he also started losing nationalistic support. So I think it, it has to be one or the other. Either there has to be an opportunity to, to durably solve, which is of course, a two-way street and sort of have a prize to be able to sell the public, or he has to maintain a, a hard stance and show that he's standing up for Turkey's red lines. And looking at the, the regional and domestic context of, of both countries, I, I think at this conjuncture, it would be overly optimistic to expect um, the two sides to make the kind of concessions that they inevitably will have to make to solve their maritime disputes. And the solution always seemed in the past to be a kind of triangular thing, that if everything was going well between Ankara, Athens and Nicosia in Cyprus, then somehow there would be a virtuous circle. And that if things were going badly between those three points of the triangle, things would become more difficult to solve. But your report describes a really new situation in which, as you put it, the Arab sides, the further away Arab countries on the, in the Mediterranean are roaring louder than the Greek and Cypriot and Turkish uh, sides. Has this international imbroglio become more difficult to solve, do you think? Yes and no. Um, I think there's some uh, signs that this uh, more regional isolation of Turkey may be on its way to being reduced. Uh, the diplomatic overtures to Egypt, there are many hurdles to normalization, but they're progressing. First, it started on the intelligence level. Now it's foreign ministry level. You know, there are conditions that Egypt have set. It will be hard for Turkey to meet. But there's there's a cautious optimism with regard to Egypt. And Egypt is very important because Saudi Arabia has also hinged its normalization with Turkey on how the Egypt process goes. I think 
the positive meetings with, with President Biden and Macron, and I think Macau last week, also point to an effort by Turkey, at least, to break out of the stalemate that has been much larger than Greece, as you said. But President Erdogan um, will uh, look at the dividends. He'll look at what it brings to his own political survival prospects, as well as to Turkey's national interests. And if it adds up, if the arithmetic, he's a pragmatic leader, if the arithmetic adds up, I think he'll pursue um, as much as possible a mending line. And, and I think Cyprus, hopefully, because right now the prospects of political settlement look um, very dim right now on Cyprus. But one would think you're right that if Turkey is able to get on another positive course uh, with the Western world in a, in, a, in a broader sense, then this should also trickle down uh, into improvement in its relations with Greece and, and solving its um, disputes with Greece and also um, support for a political settlement in Cyprus. So some room for hope, but really, I mean, right, we're kind of back to where we started with. It's a very, very, very complicated situation. Um, Nagar, we're out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Uh, so for our listeners, if you want to dig deeper, uh, please check out our report, Turkey, Greece, from Maritime Brinksmanship to Dialogue, which is available on the Crisis Group website, www.crisisgroup.org. You should also follow Nagar's work at Insights. One of the best ways to do that is to follow her on Twitter. She's at Nagar Goxel, N-I-G-A-R-G-O-K-S-E-L. And you can also follow uh, wider reporting on Crisis Group, which is uh, at Crisis Group on Twitter. On the website itself, you will uh, find on Eastern Mediterranean Rivalries, a collection of all our work on the Mediterranean and Aegean issues relating to the topic of today's podcast. And of course, uh, you can also follow uh, myself, Hugh Pope, at Hugh underscore Pope, and Olga at Olya Olika, O-L-Y-O-L-I-K-E-R, on Twitter. Also, do check us out on Facebook and Instagram, which uh, are both at Crisis Group. While you're on Twitter or sitting at your email or wherever else, uh, let us know what you like or don't like in the podcast. We are always paying attention, ideas for guests and topic, ideas for how we run things. We're always interested in hearing your views. And if you're listening through iTunes, we would be grateful if you could leave us ratings and reviews as well. War and Peace is a partner of a network of podcasts about Europe and European issues. Uh, do check out Europod for some of the others. As always, big thanks to our producer, Boo Media, and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Zerufin Asifa and Maria Cipriani, who prepare us for the show every time we record. But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners, and we're looking forward to reaching out to you again in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group.